Thank you, Pastor Randy. Thank you to our instrumentalists as well. Those are some great favorites. It's always good to be able to sing these songs of Christmas. They remind us of our Lord and what He's done for us. If you would turn with me tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 19, or I'm sorry, to 1 Kings chapter 19, I want to continue our series on dealing with doubt. And in particular, a man who was much like a man we've already studied, we're going to be studying about Elijah, very similar to John the Baptist, and some of the discouragement that he went through. 1 Kings 19, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. We have to understand before we come to this passage that Elijah has just enjoyed a great spiritual victory on Mount Carmel where he called down fire from heaven. And as a result, many of the people of the ten northern tribes called Israel seemed to turn to God. And they even said the Lord or Jehovah is God. But then in the aftermath, we find that he was threatened by Jezebel, and he runs. And this is what 1 Kings 19, the first few verses, is explaining to us. So in 1 Kings 19 and verse 1, the Bible says, And Ahab told Jezebel, his wife, his queen, all that Elijah had done, and withal, how he had slain all the prophets, that is, the prophets of Baal, and there were 450 of them described in the last chapter, with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree or uh, a broom tree, a very, very large shrub. Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Uh, I'm sorry, I uh, skipped there. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked And behold, there was a cake or a loaf of bread, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink. And when in the strength of that meat, or that food, forty days and forty nights, unto Horeb, the mount of God. Let's pray. Father, give us grace 
as we look to your word tonight. We thank you for the encouragement that it gives us. And Lord, if we have not already, we will come to these times in our lives when we are discouraged. We pray, Lord, that we would take examples from this man and others and that we would learn how your grace restores, how your word nourishes and renews. We thank you for that. So we pray that we would learn these lessons tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. James said that Elijah was a man of like passions as we. That means that he was just like us. So in Sunday school as a child, we would often hear about Elijah and his great victories. But you don't hear very much about Elijah in the valley. It's always Elijah on the mountain. But Elijah certainly had his valley experience. So thus far, Elijah has confronted the wicked king Ahab, but now he discovers the real power behind the throne. And it is Ahab's Phoenician wife, Jezebel. So she is not from Israel. She is from a nation to the north. Tyre and Sidon, the two cities of Phoenicia, are mentioned in the Bible numerous times. She was a worshiper of Baal. And she took the lead in persecuting God's prophets. If you'll go back to 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 19, Elijah mentions the 450 prophets of Baal who ate at Jezebel's table. So they had an honored place there. And she had brought them in, and in turn, she persecuted the true prophets of Jehovah. Those were the times in which Elijah lived. As we go through God's word, one of the things that we need to try to do is to put ourselves in that situation. Because these things are written for our learning. Imagine being a follower of Jehovah, and all of a sudden you are hiding for your life. You cannot express your devotion to Jehovah openly. Because if you do, your life will be in danger. It's worth remembering and noticing that many of our brothers and sisters across the world are now facing this. And how often we take it for granted that we can gather in a place like this in safety and not have to worry about this. But that's not the world in which Elijah lived. And that needs to be taken into consideration. And by the way, it may get that way here someday. And let me say this, if it does, it's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's going to cost something to serve God. It's not going to be just an empty profession anymore. It's not going to be cheap grace. But that's the world in which this man lived. Ian Proven said this, So, given all of this and Jezebel's cruelty, we are not surprised that chapter 19 opens with a bedraggled Ahab reporting to his queen what Elijah has done to him and passing the responsibility over to her. 
Remember, she is the real power behind the throne. Nor are we surprised to find Jezebel once told the tale of Carmel, how Elijah had executed these men, offering the kind of immediate and decisive response of which Ahab was so patently incapable. So she takes charge. She's going to do something about it if he doesn't. So she solemnly promises that Elijah's life is going to be like one of the prophets, the prophets of Baal that he killed. And given her track record, you can see this in chapter 18 and verse 4. If you'll turn back there with me, chapter 18 and verse 4, where it says, For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Then in verse 13, was it not told my Lord, this is Obadiah the king's steward saying this, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and hid them with bread and water. This is her track record. She is to be taken seriously. She's not a paper tiger. So she is out for blood. And because of that, Elijah retreats. And he didn't do this because God told him to do it. He's doing it of his own volition. So God did not order this. But I think what probably happened is that it took Elijah by surprise. On Mount Carmel, many of the people professed belief in Jehovah, and he thought that was going to be a great, great turning point. But he was disappointed. Have you ever been there? I know people who have expected some great event to take place. And it may be something personal, maybe something in your family, maybe one of your Wayward relatives makes a profession of faith and you say, finally, my prayers have been answered. But then maybe the profession turns out to be insincere or false. Many people look in this country, when we're talking about nationally, to a political election. And they think that if only we get good leaders then our nation is going to turn to God. Good leadership is important, but folks, that doesn't mean that the nation is going to turn back to God just because we do get a man in a position of leadership. And we have to understand that if we're not careful, we can set ourselves up for disappointment. So yes, we do our part. We pray for those who are lost. We, we share the gospel with people. We rejoice when they make a profession. You know, nationally speaking, we vote. We want good leaders because we know that's important. But we also have to keep in mind that sometimes things don't turn out the way we think that they should. And this is exactly what happened to Elijah. I really believe that. I believe that he was expecting a national revival. And he thought that the seed of it was planted there at Carmel and it was going to blossom into some kind of national movement and the ten tribes were finally going to turn back to God. 
because they had become more and more corrupt. You know, there were 19 kings in all for the 10 northern tribes. None of them were godly. Uh, only one even came close, and that was Jehu. But he was not a sincere believer. So these people had corrupted themselves. Elijah had high hopes. He really did. But then this woman threatens him. Maybe in his mind, nobody sticks up for him. Everybody is just silent. Maybe that's why he runs. I don't think he's a coward in the sense that he did this as a pattern of life. But in a moment of weakness, his faith begins to flag and, and to fail. So, uh, Jezebel is a woman who still swears by her gods. And she does that in chapter 19 and verse 2. I think that's interesting. Even though she believes in the wrong gods, she's still a sincere zealot in them. So it doesn't matter to her that her prophets could not call down fire. She still believes in them. In fact, uh, one person said she's a religious zealot who is impervious to evidence. Have you ever wondered what would it take for an atheist to believe? What kind of evidence would they demand? Well, they've got a heart problem, not just a head problem. That's what we have to take into consideration. Jezebel had a heart problem. And the shock of this, though, he, Elijah forgets to think theologically according to the principles of God, and he simply reacts to circumstances. So he is terrified. Have you ever been there? He's not only disappointed, he's not only discouraged, he's terrified. He's afraid for his life. Many, many people live in fear. He travels from one end of the land of Israel to another. So he goes from Jezreel, that's in the north, all the way to Beersheba in the south. He's not done yet. But that's already a, a journey that basically spans the entire length of Israel. Now, according to Google Maps, it's about 109 miles from here to New York City. Now, that's not as the crow flies, but Elijah went 107 miles. Can you imagine that? Almost the distance, basically, to New York City. That's how long the man has been traveling. And he has been running for his life. The Bible doesn't tell us how long this took place, how long this journey was. But he made it as fast as he, as he could, I'm sure. And his servant is with him. But then he leaves his servant there at this southernmost point, And he's in the land of Jehoshaphat, the godly king, but he's still not satisfied that he's safe. And so he continues south for another day or, or for a day's journey. So he's already been traveling all this time, but now he goes for another day. And he goes into the wilderness and he collapses under a juniper or a, actually a broom tree. And he is very, very depressed. In fact, he has sort of a death wish in 1 Kings 19.4. He requested for himself that he might die. He said in, in verse 4, it is enough. 
In other words, we could put it this way, I've had enough. I've come to the end of my rope. And a lot of God's people have gotten to that point. A lot of people who have been engaged in the battle. Lord, I've just had enough. We've seen that with Jeremiah. We've seen it with John the Baptist in despair and and with others in our study. But he said, take away my life. Lord, just go ahead and kill me. You see, this was his whole life. This is what he lived for. He was a prophet. Moses had set down the law. His job was to call people back to it. So basically, he was the prophet who who was calling people back to faithfulness to the covenant. This was his entire existence, and he seemed like a failure. And maybe what he's saying is, I'm not any better than those before me. Or maybe he's just saying, I'm ready to join my fathers in the grave because I've had enough. But the lesson here is that when doubt brings spiritual depression, the Lord knows how to restore our souls. We have to leave that to Him. God knows how to restore us. Number one, there is an important thing that we often overlook, and that is refreshment for the body. Number one, refreshment for the body in verses 1 through 8. God knows that we are but dust. Unfortunately, we oftentimes forget that. We live in a workaholic culture. Now, there is good and bad to that. Let me say this. Some people just need to get up and get going and go to work and earn a living rather than living off of other people. I believe that that's how God means it to be, and He even says so in His Word. I don't believe that healthy people were meant to lie around and be lazy and do nothing and live off of other people. And I believe that that's one of the mandates that God gave us from the very beginning. There is nothing virtuous in being lazy. And sometimes that is held up as a virtue in our society. And it's not. It is a vice. It is a terrible vice. Now it's one thing if you're disabled. Obviously in that case you can't work. And as you get older there's a time when you can only do so much. But otherwise if you're healthy and able you ought to go to work. Well, my parents were big on this when I was a kid. Summer vacation came around. You know, the other kids, they would sleep in. Boy, I never got to sleep in. My dad was like, hey, get up, get moving. I've got a job for you. In fact, I've got a whole list of jobs for you. And if I didn't do it, I was in trouble. I'm glad for that. You know, I didn't enjoy it at the time, that I can see now from my vantage point where that helped me a great deal in life. To do a job, to do the best you can at it, and to do it right. There's so many people in this world, if they do a job, they don't do it right. And it's sloppy. 
So my mother, the first time she told me to cut the grass, I didn't do it right. Well, she made me do it right. And she reinforced that lesson for me. It's a lesson that I never forgot. And it has gone with me throughout life. So let me say that from the very beginning. That work is a gift from God. And it is valuable. It is virtuous. But you can take any good thing too far. And I believe that one of the reasons why in in our society today that some of us have difficulty is that we do go to the other extreme where work has become a god. Instead of a tool, instead of an instrument, it has become a slave driver. It has taken the place of God. It's taken the place of His work. It has taken the place of family. And as a result, we have given it a place that it does not deserve. There are times when our physical bodies can become so run down We neglect our Bible study and our time of personal prayer. And I think that in in this case, in Elijah's case, what he needed was, very, very simply, was just rest and food. And notice how God shows his concern for Elijah. In 1 Kings 19 and verse 5, the Bible says that, He was sleeping under this tree and an angel touches him and says, Arise and eat. And there was a a loaf of bread that the angel had cooked for him. Now, this may have been the angel of the Lord. And if that's the case, it was not an angelic being, but it was the pre-incarnate Christ. And of course, Christ is not an angel. He's the Son of God. But it reminds me of that time after Jesus rose from, the, uh, rose from the grave and he met his disciples on the shore and they had been fishing all night. And do you remember how he fixes them a meal? It reminds me so much of this. Isn't it amazing how God cares for us? And sometimes we just overlook that. The next time you put food into your mouth, remember God is the one who is feeding you. It's because of him that you have food. We have two cats at at home, and these cats depend upon their owners. They depend upon us to feed them. So we take out the cans, and and we open it, and, and we put the meat in their bowl, and they're dependent upon us. Well, in the same way, we're dependent upon God for our food. Well, we buy it at ShopRite or we buy it from the farm. But if God doesn't give the sunlight, if He doesn't give the rain, if He doesn't give the nutrient-rich soil, then there are no plants, there are no animals, there's no food. We get it straight from the hand of God. And God made our bodies for that. He made our bodies for rest. So there's a time when we need to take that relaxation, when we need to get a good night's sleep. I learned this in in college. I was a very intense student. There were times I would stay up all night to study for tests and to do spiritual disciplines. And, you know, one of our college professors, a man that I respected greatly, 
But he said, you know, people look at the great giants of the past and they say, well, look at how they got up early. And they said their morning prayers at uh, so early in the morning. He said, but you've got to remember, they were going to bed very, very early. They didn't have electric lights. They had candles or well oil lamps, which don't really produce a whole lot of light. So they were going to bed early, 8, 9 o'clock. You have to keep that in mind. People need rest. And God knew that Elijah needed rest. William MacDonald said this, It's interesting to notice God's treatment for this severe depression. Rest, food, and drink. And then more rest, more food and drink. Sometimes that'll do wonders for us. Sometimes it's just a matter of getting proper rest and proper nourishment. God knows what we need. Refreshment for the body. Take care of yourself physically. Number two, renewal of spiritual vision. Renewal of spiritual vision. This is in verses 9 through 14. Letter A, focusing on God's goodness instead of self-pity. Elijah said in verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah doesn't talk about the miraculous provision of God when God fed him with ravens. He doesn't talk about the little boy that, that he resurrected by the power of God. He doesn't even mention Mount Carmel where God showed his power. But all he's talking about is himself, self-pity, focused upon his own self. That is a sure formula for misery when you are focused upon yourself. Lord, I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one who follows you. That was not true. There were other prophets who were hiding in a cave. There were 7,000 who had never bowed the knee to Baal. There were many other people who cared. There were many other people who were trying to serve God. Letter B, focusing on God's work is what we ought to be doing instead of obsession with failure. And yes, focusing on failure can be an obsession. Just looking at the bad things. It's true that many of the Israelites had broken the covenant. But he also doesn't mention the faithfulness of a man named Obadiah. Now this is not not the same man who wrote the book of Obadiah. It's a different man. But he was the manager of King Ahab's household. He's the one spoken of in chapter 18. And he was the one who had hidden a hundred prophets. So God had a man in the palace. In fact, he was Ahab's steward. Do you see how God had orchestrated this? Who else would have the information necessary to know where God's prophets were and how to protect them? He was high up in the royal hierarchy. He would have had the knowledge. He would have had the resources needed 
to give help to these prophets. Then letter C, focusing on God's ways instead of our own. Elijah lodged in a cave, and that's where God asks him a simple question. And this is in verse 9. If you'll look there, in chapter 18 and verse 9, God asked him this very, very simple question. Chapter 19 and verse 9. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? It's a question of self-examination. God knew what he was doing. God knows all things. He knew he was running. But it's a question that is meant to call forth Elijah's sense of self-examination. What am I doing here? It's like the question in Genesis 3, 9, where God said to Adam, Where art thou? God knew exactly where Adam was. But it's a a question of self-examination. Then in verse 11, God tells Elijah, Go forth, stand upon the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. This reminds us of Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. If you'll turn there with me, Exodus 34 and verse 6. And you want to notice that Language there where it says, the Lord passed by. In Exodus 34, 6, we find Moses. Back in the the first five books, the writer of the first five books, and he is on Mount Sinai, and he is given a revelation of God. The Bible says in Exodus 34, 6, and the Lord, what? Passed by. That's a special phrase. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord or Jehovah, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. God revealed himself. That's the meaning behind this. Well, here is Elijah, a true prophet, coming in the, in the mold of, of Moses, the new Moses, So, uh, if you want to use the, that terminology, calling people back to faithfulness to the covenant. And in 1 Kings 19, 11, God says, Go forth, stand upon the mount before the Lord. He had told Moses something very similar back in the book of Exodus. And then it says, Behold, the Lord passed by, and there was a, a whirlwind, and it, it broke the, the rock in pieces. Have you ever been on a mountain, and there's a strong wind that comes? It's a scary thing. But especially in this case, where... The rocks were breaking into pieces, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. In other words, he did not demonstrate or reveal himself in these ways. He could have, because he did before. In Exodus 19, when he appeared to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, there was fire. There were thunders, there were lightnings, there was a thick cloud. There was a trumpet that was exceeding loud. All of these things happened, but but here with Elijah, it's different. And we see that in verse 12. The Lord finally does pass by, and it is a still, small voice. Now, that could be translated 
a brief sound of silence. And that really does give some insight on this passage. The Lord passes by and all of a sudden there is this dead silence. After all of this roar and din from the, the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake and the fire, and all of a sudden, this very, very soft sound, if anything at all. I think the lesson here is that God speaks through dramatic and miraculous means, the wind, the fire, the earthquake. We see that in Scripture. But He also speaks through quiet and providential means what we think of as silence or the still small voice. What is the lesson for us? Have you ever said, God, why are you silent? Are you there? Seems like things are happening in my life and you don't respond. Why are you silent? And my friend, that's where we have to learn that God is there and He's working just like he was in the past. And it may not be in the dramatic way that we think he should work. There are places in the Bible, in the book of Acts, where thousands are saved on one day. But then there are times, the times in which Elijah lived, very, very few were being saved. The Lord said, 7,000 I have reserved unto me. That's not a whole lot out of a nation but God is still working. And that's where we have to trust Him. That's where we bring, we go to number three, relief provided by others. Relief provided by others. The Lord gave him three assignments. He was to anoint three men. Hazael, the king of the Arameans, or the Syrians, in Damascus. He was to anoint Jehu, king of Israel, And then he would anoint Elisha. These three men would be used by God to purge Israel of Baal worship. I think one of the lessons we can learn here is that individuals are important, but God works through many different people. And I'm not trying to be harsh when I say this. But no one is indispensable in the work of God. And sometimes we think that. We think we're the king or we think we're the queen. That God can't get along without us. And that's not the case with any of us. There's only room for one king in the work of God. And that's God himself, Jehovah God. He's the one who appoints and sets up, and He's the one who brings down. I say this not to devalue our individual contributions, but to remind us not to fall victim to spiritual pride. Elijah was not the only one. God had others that He was going to use. I don't mean this to be harsh. In fact, I think it should be a means of comfort It's not up to us. And some people, some Christians have that idea that the work of God is all up to me. And listen, you could never bear that, even if you tried. It's going to destroy you if you try. God is the one who is sovereign, not us. 
And so I hope that you don't have that idea. There's one final lesson to be learned, and that is that God will accomplish the work that he has purposed to do. That's a great comfort to me. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said this, Though the, mill, the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. They move slow from our perspective, but they grind very fine. God does not miss anything. Jezebel's wickedness was not overlooked by God. You look at the end of Ahab and Jezebel, the gruesome end that they had, and then the eternity in hell beyond that. God is a just judge. So we look at the injustice in this world and, they, and we say, Lord, why are you silent? But he's not silent. He is working. In the end, there is no sin that he will overlook, but all sin will be judged. I'm glad we serve a long-suffering God and that he is patient with us, but he will pursue justice in the end. Let's be encouraged that the work of God goes on and not doubt him, but put our trust and faith in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the encouragement it provides for us. We think of this man, Elijah, and we understand that he was a man just like we are. And, Lord, there is nothing that we can do but by your grace. Help us to understand that and to go forth this week in your power, by your grace, to fulfill the work that you've given us to do. Pray if there's one here who is in the grip of discouragement that you would lift that person up. Fortify them with your grace. In Jesus' name.